Okay, let's get into the sermon today, the strategies of Satan. And today I want to talk about Satan's strategy of splitting us up. There was a woman one time I heard about who uh, wanted, uh, decided she was lonely and decided she would buy a parakeet. And the parakeet would talk to her and she wouldn't be so lonely, right? So she goes down to the store and she buys a parakeet. She brings the parakeet home. Three or four days go by. The parakeet doesn't talk, doesn't say anything. And so she goes back to the store, and the store owner said, well, listen, do you have a ladder? And she, he, she said, no. He said, well, that's, that could be the problem. They like to walk up and down. That might, that might just be the thing that the parrot will talk to. She bought a ladder, went home. parrot still doesn't talk. So she goes back, and he said, do you have a, an exercise wheel? So they like that, and uh, that will stimulate his nervous system. He might talk. Tried that. and didn't work. And then she goes, uh, uh, he, she goes back to the story. He said, well, do you have a mirror? And, and she said, no, I don't have a mirror. So that, that's got to be it. If, if, they, if, the, if the parakeet had a mirror and could watch himself, it, it would probably be the thing. So she gets the mirror, and the parrot still doesn't talk. And uh, fi- finally, she goes back to the store, and she says, well, I have to tell you, my parrot is dead. And he said, well, really, I'm sorry to hear that, um, but did the parrot say anything before he died? She said, yes, he did speak right before he died. And he said, do they have any food down there? (laughs) Sometimes the church is kind of like that. We have a great worship team, which we do have a great worship team here. We have great programs, which we have great programs here. Children, youth, uh, community groups, outreaches. We have great programs. We have great preaching, of course. (laughs) We have all these things, right? But what the church is really supposed, what the church can't survive without is love and unity and caring for one another. What people need when they come in. See, sometimes, sometimes I get the feeling with some churches is that if you are lost out in the world, we really love you. If you are far from God, we just love you to death. But once you become a member of our church, then we're going to reject you. <laughs> then then we're, going to, we're going to humble you now that you've become one of us. And not at Bethany, but the, the church down the street. The word devil comes from the Greek word, I'm not Greek word, Latin word, diabolos, and which can be translated to divide, to separate, or more literally to throw against. Carrie Newhoff said the greatest mistake you can make with evil is to overestimate or underestimate its influence. I believe Satan's major tool among Christ's followers is to divide us and keep us separate from one another. Pope Francis said divisions are handy weapons that the devil uses to destroy the church from within. He has two weapons, but the main one is division. Please fight against division because it is one of the weapons that the devil uses to destroy the local church and the universal church. Paul actually defines the human behaviors that are motivated by God and the ones that are motivated by Satan. He does this in Galatians 5. He begins by listing the characteristics of people whose lives are under the influence of evil. Ready for the list? It's hatred, discord, sexual immorality, jealousy, impurity and debauchery, fits of rage, 
sexual immorality, or fits of rage, dissensions, factions, envy, and conceit. Notice there's those big sins that we think about. Sexual immorality, of course, that's a big one. Debauchery, that's a big one. We're not sure what it means, but it just sounds big, right? And, but along with that is discord. Along with that is hatred. Along with that is dissensions and factions. Factions is little groups of people who get together and talk bad about other groups of people or individuals. This is what we see happening to the life of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 15, I want to read these verses to you. And I want you to listen for the rejection of Paul. There's a rumors and, and, and messages going around at the Corinthian church that Paul is weak, he's a fool, he's a fraud, he's, he's taking advantage of us. There's something really weird and going on in his life. Let me read it to you. I hope you will put up with me a little, in a little foolishness. <clears throat> yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I pre- might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived, the serpent's cunning, your minds, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the one we preached, or if you've received a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put it up, put it up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving report from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people, here's what I want you to focus with me. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now, what is happening in Corinthians is what uh, a legal term. There's actually a legal term for what was happening. And it's still on the books in about a dozen states in regard to marriage. It's called the alienation of affection. In fact, Kevin Howard of North Carolina got a settlement of $750 against a man who got involved with his wife. There's three criteria for the alienation of affections. You, want, you must be, first of all, happily married. You must be able to prove that. And that love and affection was alienated or destroyed. And number three, the wrongful and malicious acts of another person produced the alienation. In fact, uh, social workers now use the term parental alienation syndrome to talk about when an ex-spouse turns children against the other spouse, and we know that happens all the time. 
I know some even within our church have been victims of that kind of thing. This is what's happened at Corinth. A group of leaders have risen up in the Corinthian church who are bad-mouthing Paul and taking the greatest of apostles and causing him to look like someone who was wrongly motivated in his ministry to them. In fact, this happened a lot in Paul's ministry. And this was a major problem. We find it, it happened in the church of Galatia. Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. The, he said, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. What's the point I'm trying to make this morning? The point I'm trying to make this morning is that Diablo, the devil, Satan, wants to alienate you from people and things that are good for you. He wants to alienate you from people who actually love you and actually want the best for you and actually know often the best for you. He wants to alienate you from relationships. He wants to alienate you from your spouse, from your parents, from your children, from your pastor and the leaders at the church. He wants to alienate you and keep you separated. That's his major job. This goes way back. Here's what he does. Number one, Satan poisons your perception so that you become unjustly critical and discontent. John Milton in Paradise Lost, which is all about the devil, a great, a great piece of literature, by the way. The mind is its own place, he said, and itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. We're currently in the culture today, we're currently in an oppression obsession. And I realize oppression is real and it's a problem. But we're in an oppression obsession. But that's nothing new. Satan's been doing that since the beginning. Since Genesis 3. He's been making people who weren't oppressed believe they were oppressed. He's been doing that. Listen to what he says in Genesis 3. And you know this, most of you know this really well. He says to Eve, the serpent, through the serpent, you won't die. In other words... This God that you're serving is actually a big fat liar. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat and you will be like it. Not only is he a big fat liar, but he is, he, he is he's insecure. You make him very insecure. You didn't know that about God. But if you'll notice what he's saying to you, he says, I don't want you to be like me. And he's terrified that you might be equal you might think that you're equal in authority and intelligence and knowledge in him, so he's keeping you down. The man is keeping you down. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So this new group of leaders had arrived in Corinth, and these men were, they were more influenced by the culture than they were of God. They were, they were, they were trained speakers. Paul says it. As Paul said, I'm not a trained speaker. They were, they're trained speakers. They're professionals. They're celebrities. See, in the Greek culture... There were traveling philosophers and teachers that were, were common. And these teachers in the church were modeling themselves after these teachers in the culture. And Paul jokingly calls them super apostles. They, they not only accepted payment, which Paul didn't, but they required it. And they lifted that up as a sign of their legitimacy and their competence. The fact that we, the fact that we make you pay to listen to us speak is a sign of our competence and our legitimacy and our anointing. That Paul, if, if, if that Paul had anything going for him, he would be charging you. He would not be coming and preaching for free. In fact, they even went so far as to say, something's really up with this guy preaching to you for nothing. There's something's really up. He's got some scam going on 
or he wouldn't be preaching for nothing, you know that there are no free lunches, right? There were also claims that Paul was dishonest with funds. And there were also another thing these teachers would do in, in this culture, in this Greek culture, is they would carry stacks of letters. And these letters were commendations. They would say, I got a letter from this leader and from this leader. They were endorsements. Paul carried no such endorsements. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. Paul carried no such letters. The simple fact, listen to me, the simple fact. You see, God's anointed servants have fruit. Not letters of recommendation, but actual fruit. The fact, listen to me, the fact that there was a church at Corinth was testimony of Paul's anointing and that, his, that he was chosen by God. And there's a long list. He, he, and what Paul does, Paul actually doubles down and he says to them, okay, see, now another thing they thought about Paul, and I almost forgot this, is, is because Paul suffered so much, they said, surely he can't be of God and suffer that much. I, I don't know if you've heard any teaching like this in the last... 30 years in the body of Christ. But, but just in case, you, you, just in case, I want you to know, it was, it was happening in the first century church that if you were suffering, if you had problems, it meant you didn't have enough faith. That, that Paul, if he had faith, and, and Paul is, I, I love I I this guy, Paul, don't you? Steve, you know, and our, our good buddy N.T. Wright writes a book this thick about Apostle Paul. And uh, you ought to read it sometimes when you have a year to do nothing. Paul goes, I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure. Stripes like, not stars and stripes, but star stripes from a whip. In prison more frequent. And he's saying more frequent than what? More frequent than, 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 than Brother Whistlebritches, as my friend used to call them. More frequent than your celebrity. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice, I was, three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, night and day I've been in the deep, in journeys, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Uh, are you getting tired already? Besides those things that were without which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. See, this devil was able to make God, who had provided a utopia for Adam and Eve, look like a power-hungry deity whose only motive was to oppress them and keep them under his thumb. Diablo will create a false narrative about the people he knows that are best for you. You have to fight it constantly. Revelation 12.10, for the accuser of our brethren and sisters has been thrown down to... Notice what it calls the devil. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. The rest of the verse says that we are made overcomers of this accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. There's a lot in that verse I won't get into. But one thing it says to me is that I must push back and overcome the divider in chief. Satan, let me tell you something. When possible, 
talk to people, not about them. It's hard to hate up close. Pastor Newman, I'm, I'm at that age, you know, when I, I'm remembering things distinctly that happened 50 years ago, but I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. And uh, that happens to you. And so I remember this pastor named Newman, the pastor in Greenville, Texas, a few miles from where I was raised. One weekend, Pastor Newman got called away, and he had to go away uh, at the last minute. And he called his brother, his twin brother, to come and fill in for him. So his twin brother came and was going to give the sermon, and, and he also went down and checked the mail at the post office. So it so happened that a church gossip was in the post office. And she looks through the, through the window, and she sees Pastor Newman in the car with a strange woman. And he gets out of the car, and he comes and checks the mail. She hides behind the door. And unfortunately, she didn't have a cell phone, so there's a little delay before she could let the world know that her pastor was, their pastor, was with a strange woman that was not his wife. And so she goes home and she calls all over the church to tell everybody that she has some inside information that Pastor Newman is running around on his wife in public. Satan's desire is to turn you into a relational and spiritual drifter. Talked to a father recently in his, in his mid-70s, and he's, psych, you know, he's psychologically really going through tough times because of a lot of things. Some things are too personal. I can't tell them. But when, when, one thing he shared with me was uh, a son he's been alienated from for 20 years over a lie about some money. And only recently did they sit in one another's presence, and that's a long story, an interesting story, that started with meeting in a bar and uh, getting into a tussle with one another in the bar, and they finally go set to talk this thing out. And it ends up the son believes something about a sum of money, and it was a total lie, and for 20 years had not spoken to his father. Isn't that sad? Isn't that amazing? I'm telling you, lying and deceiving is the devil's tools to keep you alienated from the people that are good for you. This is what happened to Adam. I mean, not Adam, but Cain. Cain and Abel. You know the story of Cain and Abel, right? Satan always tries to alienate it from our key relationships. And here's what alienates us from our key relationships. I want to tell it to you in the story of Cain and Abel. First of all, let me tell you what happened to Cain after he killed his brother. And I want to tell you why I believe he had to kill his brother. First of all, the Bible says that he became a vagabond. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you will be on earth. A vagabond is one who wanders from place to place, having no fixed dwelling or no abiding in it. Satan wants to make you a vag vagabond so that you cannot bond to any person or group of people or you can't stay in any church for too long. I don't think we realize what the genesis of that murder was. Think about it. 
God wanted a blood sacrifice. Cain was a farmer. He raised wheat. He raised, probably had fruit trees. So he could bring God fruit. He could bring God grain as a sacrifice. And sometimes God asked for that. But this time God is asking for a blood sacrifice. Abel raised cattle. So he had a blood sacrifice. He wasn't necessarily better than Cain. But he had what God wanted. He had the gift that God wanted. So Cain had a choice. He had a choice to go get a blood sacrifice from his brother or hate his brother. And he chose to hate his brother because we as human beings, we have a natural dislike of needing another person. Because if I need you, I'm vulnerable to you. If I need you, it means I'm lacking and you have something that I am lacking. I propose to you that what happened in the story of Cain and Abel is that God wanted Cain to need his brother. And rather than need his brother, he murdered him. Now, we don't murder by stabbing somebody with an actual knife. We murder with our tongues and with gossip and with stories that create a mob mentality and create a narrative among a group of people who begin to socially punish the person that we're telling the stories about. This is how the devil works. I'm tempted to do this, by the way. I don't want to put, I'm, I'm the leader and you're talking about it. No, I, I have the same, I, I fight the same fight you fight. I get narratives, I tell myself stories, and I'm getting better at, you know, I, here, here's a little conversation that will, that will save you from this hell that the devil will create for you. Because you're going to tell yourself stories, because that, that, that's a human thing. Your brain does not like a vacuum. So when something happens, or, or even, even if it doesn't happen, you're going to tell yourself a narrative about another person. But here's a, here's a simple statement that will deliver you. Go to the person and say, you know, I'm, here's a story I'm telling myself about you. Would you address it and clear it up for me? That will save you so much heartache and grief, and it will save everybody heartache and grief because you won't get narrative started that in their, in their final analysis are just really lies. Half-truths at best. You know, th- this, is what, uh, this is what, and I'm not, I'm not comparing anyone to a communist dictator or anything like that, and, but, but this, is, this is what they would do. You know, like when, when, uh, when uh, Joseph Stalin, he wanted, he, wanted to, he wanted all the farms collectivized, and he, ha- he had all these farmers, especially in the Ukraine, who were really good at raising wheat. And uh, he, he wanted to take over all their farms, so he just started spreading the, the he sp- started spreading the information that anybody who had eight acres or more had obviously stolen it and didn't deserve it. And so, by doing this, he he also said they deserved to be killed or sent to Siberia. And so because of this, a million I'm telling you, a million people called kulaks were murdered or sent to Siberia, and then as a subsequent, because the other, other people in, in, in couldn't grow wheat. They were the ones who knew how to grow wheat. So I, I think it's something like three million people starved to death because of the famine that he intentionally produced, and he didn't care. So Julie Rohrer, a Ph.D. candidate for the, at the Max Planck Institute who studied a large group of Germans who said they were committed to trying to become happier. And see, see that... God never does anything just for the other person. You know what? 
God never tells me to be nice to you just for you. He tells me to be nice to you because he knows it's what I need as well. He knows that I will be happier. He knows that you have something I need, and I need to be humble before you so I can, be, I, so I can, so I can take advantage. If you, I know that's a bad use of words, but, but so I can utilize your gifts. But uh, she, she did this study of people are trying to become happier, and there were two groups. There was one group who sought happiness by self-improvement, getting a better job, making more money, uh, while the, another group tried to get happier by spending more time with friends and family. A year later, she found those who focused on connecting more with others were happier than those who pursued self-improvement. The number one predictor of lo- longevity is relational connection versus loneliness. Loneliness, researchers have found, in the, uh, there's a whole field of study on this right now. In the last five years, I would say, Researchers have found that loneliness is equal to smoking 16 cigarettes a day. So if you're smoking cigarettes and you're lonely, you really need to, you need to get some friends and stop smoking, okay? Finally, I want to challenge you with this. This is my closing here today. I want to challenge you to become a Paul who fights for relationships and connections. I remember all those years ago when Jay was a young, just getting into adolescence, and he had this friend. And that friend's parents, the dad especially, was totally lenient and, 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 and didn't seem to care what his son was doing or where his son was. And we were, we, were, we were really nagging parents who were always caring about where our kid was and what he was doing and who he was with and gave him, gave him the third degree, you know. And I remember one day picking Jay up in the car, and he had been visiting with a friend, this friend, and Jay says to me, Dad, when I'm a dad, I'm going to fight for my kid. <laughs> and I love that. I'm, I, that. That always stuck with me. Everything, listen, lo, notice what Paul did. When Paul began to feel rejected by the Corinthians, he fought for the relationship with them. He moved closer to them rather than farther away. Isn't that amazing? I, if I would have been Paul, I would have struggled with I don't even, I'm not going back to Corinth. They don't pay me, and they're talking smack about me. I, I wouldn't have. It would have been harder, but Paul is like writing them the longest letter he wrote any other church. And Paul is saying, I, Paul, Paul is saying, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul understood something. And I, as I said earlier, I want to say it to you too. I, I'm not... I'm very blessed as a pastor. I have a, a lot of people that, that pour into me and love me. And, I, and this is a good church. I, I just, if you're a visitor here today, you dropped in to visit us, this is a good church. This church is full of great people. This church is full of people that support leadership. Wonderful place. So I, I, many, many pastors would like to trade places with me. Right, Steve? You know that's true. And, uh, but but I want to I say this, and I hope, it, I hope it doesn't come across the wrong way. I, hope, I really hope it doesn't. But I, I feel like I need to say it. The greatest personal hurt that I have felt, in, and I've been doing this for 40 years, the greatest personal hurt that I've felt is those people who wouldn't fight for a relationship with me when I was fighting for a relationship with them. Because... Christ at the cross 
is an example of what God does when we pull away from Him and we turn our backs on Him, He runs after us. He sends His Son to the cross to get us back. That's what relationships inside the church are supposed to look like. Amen? Amen? Because you need to get planted. Listen to this. Psalms chapter 92 verse 13. This is a verse you ought to put on your mirror. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. If you're, if, if you're alienating yourselves from people and you're, you're moving around all the time, you're not planted. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. So let me give you a few bullet points to close with you today. Make relational connections and networking a priority of your heart and your schedule. Paul made tents for a living, but he lived for human connection. Balance everything else with relationships and connections. You can get so caught up. I, I don't think that most people who don't bond with others do it intentionally. Life just gets in the way. They've got to landscape their yard. They've got to put new windows in the house. They've got to put the new deck on the back. They've got to remodel the, the living room, the family room, put on a family room. They, they, they've, got to, they've got to take trips to here and to there. They've got to take the family to, to Disney and to the Cape. And, and, uh, and they've got uh, youth sports to be concerned about. And, and, and life just fills up, man. And life just fills up, and one day you realize you've neglected the most important facet of following Christ is that you are the body of Christ. You're not just someone who goes to church. You are the church. So balance everything else, all that other stuff, the whirlwind that you have to do, by the way. I'm not knocking you for that. Balance the whirlwind with intentional relational time. And it's simple stuff, man. It's lunch, cup of coffee. It's taking a ride. It's simple stuff that connects you with other human beings, watching a game together, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Meeting together for a, a session of prayer. Having an accountability partner that you meet with to talk about your walk and your life, man. Do life with the people that you love God with. Amen? Second, another point I want to make is forgive constantly and let stuff go. We all know that famous story where Simon Peter says to the Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother seven times? Because that was the Pharisees' standard, seven times. Then you're done with them. Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Per day, actually. Seventy times seven wasn't about math. It was about our deep commitment to people in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that we have to constantly forgive them. You know, if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, you're going to have to constantly forgive them for all kinds of little stuff that we all do, that we're all flawed and we're all weak and we're all trying to do this thing called life and it's hard. How many of you know it's hard to do life? It's hard. It's hard to do it right and do it well. And you need a group of people in your life that are a buffer from the storms of life. 
And if everybody in your life is tedious and got their magnifying glass on every little thing that you do and never let anything go, they will crush you instead of give you life. So forgive constantly and let stuff go. When you can't forgive, every once in a while, there's something that's so big and so major that you can't forgive. The Bible is very clear on what you do in that case. Instantly forgive. I mean, I mean, you can't instantly forgive. Something. When you can't instantly forgive, confront privately and gently. Matthew 18. We've worn that text out years ago. Someone sins against you, go tell them their fault privately between you and them alone. If you hear them, if they hear you, you have won your brother. Isn't that a twist in how we usually do it? When you're offended by somebody, it's the first thing you think about, I got to go win them back. Is that, is, is that the first thing you think about, Steve? Somebody offends you? I got to go win them back. They're offending me. We, we must not be close anymore. I got to get them close to me again. If that's the opposite of the way, the way you operate, welcome to the club. Welcome to being human. We're not called to be humans. We're called to be like Christ. Are you ready for that? Huh? I guess not. <laughs> One of the main reasons people don't improve and get better is when their behavior annoys us, hurts us, upsets us, or irritates us, we create narratives which we publish and social punishment begins to happen, right? Now, you may wonder why I'm preaching the sermon today. Well, I, mean, I felt like God gave it to me in prayer. But you may think, well, he's preaching a sermon to improve church attendance. Well, okay, I'm guilty as charged. I, want him, I, think, I think improved church attendance is good for you. So, yeah, okay. In fact, you know, they did, uh, they did uh, psychological studies about people who attended church during COVID, people who didn't, and they found that people who attended church to have much less anxiety and to be psychologically healthier than the people. And I'm not putting you down for staying away from church because some of you needed to do that. That's your personal decision. I'm just telling you what the psychologists are saying, okay? So my point is this. Going to church is really good for you. <laughs> okay, you might say, well, you're just saying this because you want me to be happy and have inward psychological satisfaction. I am guilty again. I want you to be happy. God wants, says he wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And the characteristic of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And God says the joy, the scripture says the joy of the Lord is my strength. And Jesus said, I, Jesus said I, I'm telling you these things, and he's telling us all this stuff, so, so your joy might be full. So yes, I'm guilty as charged. I want you to stop living in a toxic way so you will be happier, and you will be. Or maybe you think um, myself and other leaders have been alienated by false narratives, and, and I'd like for that not to happen anymore. I'm guilty as charged again. Yes. I think it's best for you and for the church of Jesus Christ if people aren't alienated from their leadership and their pastor. I think it's just better for all of us if we're on the same page and we love each other, right? But 
to all those reasons, and I could go through three or four more, but I won't take the time. The main reason we must cut the divider-in-chief's legs out from under him is that we must not forget that we are in community for community. Lucifer, Slewfoot, Diablo doesn't want the world to know that God is good and Jesus is Lord and that God loves them and Jesus loves them and that being a Christ follower is the very best thing there ever it could be and it's the most amazing life there is. It's the best way to live. And the scripture is the most wonderful guide of, for wisdom, for how to live your life in a way that's most fruitful, most guarded against evil, most guarded against hurt and harm, and, will, uh, and, and most likely to cause your life to end up very well. He doesn't want them to know. And, and guess who's been given the task of letting the world know that Jesus is alive? Guess who he gave that task to? He gave it to the church. And if we're fighting and at each other's throat and talking behind each other's back and alienating each other and suffering the alienation of affection within this house, we're not going to be available for the community that doesn't know Jesus yet. A new command I give you, he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's what I got to say about that. <laughs> Maybe you're here today. You know, back when... Uh, I, I, I lived through what we call the charismatic movement. And it was a pretty cool time. I mean, everybody was casting demons out of everything and everybody. And, and, uh, and we were having long services and worship. And uh, I enjoyed the charismatic movement. It, you know, came out of Roman Catholics. A lot of Roman Catholics started receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Notre Dame. And it just spread all over the country, and it was great. One of the things, that you, they used to sing this song in the charismatic movement, I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of my king. I love you, Lord. And, and invariably, the worship leader would have you stand and look somebody right in the eye. You're this far from their face. You hope, hopefully, they would brush their teeth. But you're this far from their face. And you're singing, I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of our king. I love you with the love of the Lord. And I used to hate that when we had to do that. But a part of me really liked it that someone would look me in the eye and say, I see in you the glory of our King. Because I believe that's the truth. I believe that if I look you in the eye and I'm honest, yes, you have faults and you have flaws and you have ways about you that are strange. But nevertheless, I can see in you the glory of the King. And I want to ask that God will give us eyes that we can look at one another and once again see the glory of the King and realize we are the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts if we need that. And all of us can get better. All of us can turn our push into a shove, our walk into a run when it comes to excellence in love. Excellence in caring 
excellence in the virtue of compassion for one another and forgiveness and unity within the church of Jesus Christ and within the community of faith. Lord, we care about everybody. We care about the person who's far from God. We care about the people who will never come to our church. We are ordered to love them. But God also teaches us to love one another. Teach us to care about one another. And make us that community within the community that the community without can look at the community within and say, that's what Jesus looks like. And I want to be a part of them. Amen.